You are listening to content from Christ Our Hope Anglican Church in Fort Collins, Colorado. For more information, you can find us on the web at ChristOurHopeAnglican.org. And now, here's today's message. Today, as promised, we are going to be continuing in a short sermon series in the book of Revelation. It's one of our lectionary readings throughout the season of Easter, and um, in particular, the lectionary readings take us to these moments in Revelation where we get a glimpse into heavenly worship. And we will get to Revelation chapter 5 in just a moment, but before we do so, I want to take a brief detour through our Old Testament reading from the book of Jeremiah, chapter 32. Um, This passage that we read today um, really contains a beautiful image of restoration of God's people. There's this moment where the people of God are, are, they know that they are going out into exile. They they are in siege around the city of Jerusalem, and the the king of Babylon is coming. And so they're crying out to God and saying, you are destroying this city through war and through famine, through pestilence. You're destroying us. What are you doing? And if we look a little bit earlier in the passage, God had actually just told them, yes, you will, in fact, lose this battle because you have not been faithful. You have not followed me as I have commanded. You have turned your hearts to other gods, and so you are going to be carried away. But then there is this promise, even as they are about to be destroyed, even as they are about to be carried off into a foreign land, that they will be restored. It begins in Jeremiah chapter 32, verse 37. He says, See, I am going to gather them, the people who were dispersed, from all the lands to which I drove them in my anger and my wrath and in great indignation. I will bring them back to this place, and I will settle them in safety. They shall be my people, and I will be their God. I will give them one heart and one way, that they may fear me for all time, for their own good and the good of their children after them. I will make an everlasting covenant with them, never to draw back from doing good to them, and I will put the fear of me in their hearts, so that they may not turn from me. I will rejoice in doing good to them, and I will plant them in this land in faithfulness with all my heart and all my soul. It's a beautiful promise, and it's a promise not only that they're going to get back what they lost, but that what they get back will actually be more and better than what they have lost. The people who were faithless before God, who failed to keep the covenant that he had given to them, would not only be restored to the land, they would be given a new heart so that this judgment would never again fall upon them. They would be given a new covenant that would never be broken. And God would rejoice in doing good to them forever. I want to start here because this passage from Jeremiah actually sets up a tension that I think we live in in the Christian life all the time. The promises of God are so, so good. And yet oftentimes, what we see is forces arrayed against us. And the knowledge that we are journeying a path of suffering, that we are headed into exile. 
Right now in the world there is war in the Ukraine. War that literally is driving thousands of Christians from their homes. People are being sent out into exile with no knowledge of when they will be able to return or what their city or home will be like when they are able to do so. Even without looking to distant seas and the great evils of the world, I know that there are people here, gathered here today, that even as we are in the season of Easter and celebrating resurrection and we are proclaiming our joy in the risen Lord, there's also suffering and grief. There are chronic illnesses that you don't know when or if they will be healed. There are family members who may be dying. There's pain. There's uncertainty in financial situations. There is strain in families. And as we proclaim the good promises of God that one day every tear will be wiped away, one day all of this will go away, there's this question that comes up into our minds over and over again when we actually face the reality of our life each and every day. How do we know that God will keep his promises? How do we know that he can? Because there are days when it feels like whatever good plan God had for creation whatever good plan he may have had for my life or yours, things have gone hopelessly awry. And so we ask again together, will God's good plans really come about? And I wanted us to start here with this detour to ask this question because it is with this question in mind that Revelation chapter 5 makes the most sense. If you have your Bibles and you want to turn with me to Revelation chapter 5, we're going to see how this vision of the heavens actually addresses this very question. At the beginning of chapter 5, John describes a scroll that is in the right hand of God, the one seated upon the throne, the Lord Almighty. He has a scroll, and the appearance of the scroll is that it has writing on both sides of it, and it has seven seals on it. And what is being described is most likely an ancient contract deed. So just like we have a contract that you have to sign something, and sometimes you seal, you put a seal on the thing that is signed. This is a contract that is signed and sealed. And John never tells us exactly what this contract contains. He doesn't tell us what is in it directly. But if you look at the context of Revelation and the way that it plays out through the rest of the book, the most likely answer is that this is God's redemptive plan for his people. This is literally a visual representation of the promises of God that we see in the hand of God. John sees the promises of God, and the question that is asked is, who is worthy to open the scroll? Because God has decided that he will carry out his purposes through an agent. That he is going to have someone else execute his righteous plan to bring his people to himself, to restore all things to him. But when they ask the question, who is worthy? There is no one who is worthy. 
And it has always been the plan of God to bring about this change through an agent. Adam was the one who was made in the image of God. He was supposed to exercise the dominion of God upon the earth as his representative, and he fell short and he sinned. Abraham was chosen from among all the people to be a blessing to the nations, and he sinned. David was the one who was supposed to be after God's own heart, the one through whom was promised a line that would last forever and ever. And he fell short, and he sinned. So all of these great figures, and there could be more that we could go on, are not worthy to open the scroll. They cannot do it. And it's not just a matter of their moral purity, because also all of the mighty angels, the visions that John has already seen of these mighty messengers and figures of God, they also are not worthy. None of them can answer the cry, not because they have fallen morally, but because they are just not sufficient to the task. When we think of worthiness, sometimes we try to confine it to the dimension of moral purity. But really, you can think of it like as a boxing champion standing up and saying, who's worthy to face me as a challenger? Who can come and take a shot at me? And the question there when we ask who is worthy is who is sufficient? Who would have a chance to actually do this? Who could possibly carry it out? And when you look at all of the saints and all of the mighty angels, there is not one who is worthy, who is able, who is sufficient to carry out the plans of God for his people. And so John begins to weep bitterly when he hears that none has been found. And there are some people who look at this weeping and they feel that perhaps the main thing that's going on is he's weeping for humanity's lack of worthiness that there is no one who was able to actually keep up to what the standard that God had set. There is no one who was able to carry this out. But I think, and there are others who agree with me, that what's going on is John is saying, if no one can carry out the purposes of God, if his promises remain unfulfilled, if the scroll remains sealed, and we never actually see what happens in the end, then the only sane response is to weep. I say this as one who knows that I have a pretty good life. I have a job that I like. I have a wife and kids who love me. I've generally had good health. But I can still look out into the world and understand the depth of suffering and sorrow that so many people experience. I know that there are people, people who hold faithfully to following after God, who have none of the blessings that I have, who live wondering if they'll have enough food for the next day, who die of starvation, who are driven out, who suffer under all sorts of ills. And if the only thing that I can carry out to them If if God's promises are not fulfilled, if I cannot carry out to them the good news that his promises will come about, that he will restore all things to himself, if I cannot honestly make that declaration, then it is reason for sorrow and weeping, just as John weeps here in this passage. But of course, the good news that comes to John and the good news that comes to us 
is that there is one who is worthy. One of the elders interrupts John's sobs to tell him that the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. This is, of course, Jesus that they are talking about. But it's Jesus framed with names that point to his messianic purposes. Basically, the Messiah was always supposed to be the agent that carried out God's purposes, the one who brought about the fulfillment of his will. And the question was always, will there be one who comes who can do that? And the answer is yes. Yes, there is one. There is one in Jesus. Amen. (laughs) And these names that are chosen, when the patriarch Jacob blessed his sons, he told Judah that he was like a lion, a young lion. And he promised that there would be one from his line who would one day bring all of the nations underneath his feet. And the root of Jesse refers to Jesse, the father of King David. And there's a promise in Isaiah 11 that a branch would spring forth from the stump of Jesse. That even as that line seemed to end, that God's promises seemed to come to an end as as the nations were wiped out and there was no longer a son of David on the throne, there's the promise that there would be a branch that would spring up. And the promise that is continued is that the root of Jesse will stand as a banner for the peoples. And the good news is that these long-awaited promises found their fulfillment in Jesus, and that it is through him that all of God's promises will be carried out. It's because he is worthy. Because he is worthy. And then one of the most interesting things that we see in this passage is that he is worthy because he has conquered. In Greek, you can actually change the order of words in the sentence. So in English, we typically have the subject and then the verb. In the Greek, you can kind of put the words in almost any order that you want, which makes interpreting it really fun. Um, But you can switch the order of words in the sentence around for emphasis. And in this particular sentence, the he has conquered is right at the beginning in order to bring emphasis. And it's pointing to the fact that he has already conquered. Not just, he's not just a worthy challenger who can potentially knock out the, challenger of, or the, the champion Satan. That can maybe possibly strike a blow against death. That maybe, if we're lucky, because he's standing up and he seems to be worthy, that he'll win the victory. He's the one who has already won the victory. This is the good news, that in the cross, Jesus has won the victory for all time, that death is already defeated. And we know that it's the cross that he's referring to, because when John, who has just heard this promise, that he, the Lion of Judah, is able to fulfill this, the, the purposes of God, the Lion of Judah is the one who can, is worthy, he turns to look at the Lion And what he sees is a slaughtered lamb. And there is this just beautiful mixed metaphor that happens here. That Jesus is both the lion and he is the lamb. And it is the moment of his death as a slaughtered lamb that is the moment of his triumph and of his conquering. 
Because in the cross, he won a great and final victory over all the forces of evil, over death, over sin, over Satan. And it's because of the cross and the resurrection that we can answer with certainty that yes, God keeps his promises. No, evil has not won. Because we look back at this event in history that happened, and we understand that all of history pivoted around this moment. That Christ died, and Christ is risen. And because of that, because of that, we know that God keeps his promises. That the wars, the death, All of the suffering we experience now is only the final spasms of an already defeated foe. In Christ, our victory is sure. Our future is certain. For the slaughtered lamb is also the victorious ram. And living in Fort Collins, you are perhaps more prepared than most people to understand the imagery that happens next in Revelation. Because he looks at this lamb and he sees upon it seven horns. In ancient times, just like at CSU, the ram was a sign of a conquering hero. It was a sign of militaristic might and victory, especially when you're looking at its horns. This is the sign of of being able to conquer. And so he looks and sees this lamb, but it's a lamb that is not just a slaughtered lamb. He's also the victorious ram, the one who will lead the charge, the one who will and has destroyed all of the foes of God. And John uses the number seven, saying there are seven horns on it, because that number shows up again and again throughout Revelation as a sign of perfection the very one who was led like a lamb to the slaughter, is perfect in his strength and in his might. There is no chance of his loss because he has already won the victory. And his seven eyes on the lamb, once again, it tells us, denote the, whole, the spirit, the seven spirits of God. And as I said at the beginning, uh, I think the most likely interpretation of this is it's looking at the sevenfold Holy Spirit. And so it's saying the spirit that was sent out into the earth was working perfectly with the lamb to bring about the purposes of God the Father. We see God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit working together to bring about his good end. And because we have the victory of Christ, Christ over death, we know that his good end will come about because God keeps his promises. And we see that in Jesus. And the Lamb takes the scroll, and the response of the angels and the elders who are gathered around the throne is immediate. They begin to worship. They sing a new song. You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals. For you were slaughtered, and by your blood you ransomed for God saints from every tribe and language and people and nation. You have made them to be a kingdom and priests serving our God, and they will reign on earth. Here's the promise that was given in Jeremiah, the idea that people would be gathered together, that they would be made pure and gathered together in the name of God, and it is fulfilled through Jesus. You are also the sign of his victory. As he has gathered you to himself, that you know him, 
that you follow after him, that you are united with him in a death like his, and that you will surely be united with him in a resurrection like his. This is the good news that we can carry out, that Christ has been victorious, and we can tell of that, even in the midst of our suffering, even in those days where we can't see the horizon of how things would possibly be restored, and yet we know that God has gathered us unto himself, that these promises that are stated are true, because I am the evidence, and you are the evidence, and the risen Christ is the one upon whom all of this turns. The Lamb is worthy because of the victory He has already won, because His blood ransomed for God saints from every tribe and language and people and nation. And so we who are part of that victory, we who participate in that victory, can proclaim with all of the angels and the elders and the myriads and myriads and thousands and thousands of angels Worthy is the lamb that was slaughtered to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. Worthy is the lamb. And this is an echo of what was song that was already sung to the one on the throne, to the Lord Almighty in chapter 4. In chapter 4, verse 11, it says, You are worthy, our Lord and God, to receive honor, glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. And now we see why the Lamb is worthy, why he is up to the task of fulfilling the purposes of God. Because he is not just the one who was chosen out of humanity to represent us, not just the one who was faithful to God. He is God the Son, the eternal Son, working with the Father and the Spirit to bring his plan to fruition. And we see that God never abandoned us. Things never went awry because it was always the plan of God, the one who created all things, to also be the one who would redeem all things. We have Father the Creator and Jesus Christ the Redeemer. And this was always their plan, working together from the very beginning of time. And so every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea lift their voices together to proclaim to both the Father and to the Son, to the one seated on the throne and to the Lamb, be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And so we do not deny as Christians that there is great suffering in the world. We do not deny our own suffering and try to play it off and pretend that it doesn't happen. But when we gather together and worship, we're not shutting our eyes to the realities of what's going on in the world. We are proclaiming the deeper realities of God. That God is both good and mighty that he keeps his promises in Christ. And we can be sure of it because we have seen the cross, because we know that it happened, that Christ has died, but Christ is risen, and so Christ will come again as a conquering lion as the ram who comes and leads the forces and wipes away the last throes of the evil. 
This is the hope that we gather to proclaim, that Christ has won the victory, that our good future is secure in him. So let us continue to proclaim this hope together today and each and every time we gather and when you're by yourself too, even when we suffer, even when we suffer, especially when we suffer. Because God himself has made his promise that all things will be set right in Jesus. And God keeps his promises. And we know this to be true. Because there may be suffering now, but the suffering is not forever. Because Christ, the Lamb, has died. And Christ, the Ram, has risen. And Christ, the Lion, will come again. This sermon is an audio ministry from Christ Our Hope Anglican Church in Fort Collins, Colorado. If you are in the area and would like to learn more about how you can worship with us in person or online, please visit us on the web at www.christourhopeanglican.org.